Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Josh Huber. It's great to be here with you guys. We're glad you're here. We also have Matthew coming back. I'm back after a week away. A week away. Actually, neither one of you were here for the last episode. It was just me and Aaron. How'd that go? It went really well. Nice. Um, Yeah, we recorded at lunchtime, which I think helped because I was awake (laughs) and I had coffee. Yeah, but I'm glad to be recording with you two late at night after church. Mm. After many tornado warnings and severe thunderstorm warnings, we are safe. God protected us, but uh, we're recording late because of that. So I'm excited. Me too. What's your favorite candy bar? (laughs) Josh, top three. Yeah, top three. Top three candy bars. Is this what you guys talk about? Yeah, sometimes. Okay. Bible reading slash candy bar podcast. Nice. Okay, top three? Yeah. Okay, well, Twix is up there. Twix? We didn't mention Twix last time. That's such a great one. Twix is good. Are you a fan of the new like cookies and cream Twix or whatever that one is, the cookie one? I'm not sure I've tried that one yet. Okay. I do like cookies and cream. I'm not used to that in Twix though so yeah that's that's interesting is it good yeah from what I remember it's kind of in like a bright blue wrapper so you'll have to look out for it okay 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 so we got Twix yeah we got Twix um I I'm a fan of the old school 100 grand bar too mm. appreciate that from way back in the day um and then you're, you're talking just strictly like chocolate candy bar type things right yeah yeah yeah, yeah not like a gummy bear bar <laughs> but yeah probably like chocolate yeah Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That and maybe uh, zero bars. I like that. Those are super, super oh, rich. What's a zero bar? I am not familiar with that. I feel like it, I've had one a long time ago. It's like a candy bar with like a thousand calories or something like that. It's it's what? Way too sweet. That it's a right. stick of and butter covered in sugar and chocolate. It, it's I don't believe you. It sounds like it should have zero calories. <laughs> it, it's it's very misleading, the title. Zero bar. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm unique. I don't think too many people like that, to be honest, because I hardly ever see them in gas stations anymore. They used to be around a lot more. Josh, you are yeah. unique. You're uh, one of a kind. <laughs> That's why we have you here. I kind of want to try I don't know if I've had a zero bar. Maybe like forever ago. That looks pretty good, though. I mean, if you like super sweet chocolate, that is white chocolate, then yeah. But mo- again, most people don't care for it. My wife can't stand it. What's... Yeah. So we got the caramel there, caramel, caramel. What's the bottom layer? Is that peanut butter or is that? Okay, you're gonna have to describe this. So it's it's <laughs> right. it's a white. It yeah, it looks like a snow white Milky Way almost. Yeah. But I'm unclear of what the the base layer is. It looks nougaty. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> okay, with caramel on top. It's, it's been a while, man. It's yeah. been a while. Have you ever had a Clark bar? I have not. Okay, no. those are pretty solid. I think that's more peanut butter based, like maybe not exactly like a Butterfinger, but that's maybe like close-ish. Anyways, that one's pretty good. Nice, nice. Last one, Charleston Chew ever do anything for anybody? I've seen those around, and that was like something my grandpa and grandma ate. I've never tried it. It's real good. The minis? I used to I used to fly through these boxes of minis. <laughs> it's like what is it? It's like the center is like a chewy vanilla. Like it's not nougaty. It's slightly more firm than that, and then it's just covered in chocolate. I don't know. It it works. Anyways, all right. That's the last candy thing I have. Last candy. <laughs> Should we start with yeah. the Old Testament? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So we're at week twenty-one. Which, if you're following along in the reading, what is it? Reading with Jesus. Yeah, I can never remember the name of it. <laughs> it's a year-long read-walk 
with Jesus. Read walk with Jesus. Yeah. Okay. If you're following along with that plan, we're discussing days 141 through 147. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. So for the Old Testament portion, this was 1 Samuel 13, verse 23, if you want to start there, through chapter 25, verse 44 is where it cuts off. So um, we're going to discuss some of the things that we find interesting and uh, maybe some application points. Matthew, do you want to walk us start start us start us off there, and we'll well, yeah, um, <clears throat> a lot of stuff about Saul. Uh, I guess overall impressions of him. Sometimes it seemed like he wasn't thinking that well, and yeah, he would just he would just kind of do stuff, and he would think that he's doing the right thing, or like he ru- he rushes a sacrifice mm-hmm. uh, pretty early on in our reading here. One question I had um, about his unlawful sacrifice, as the title says, um, I guess pretty clearly, if you're going by the details, uh, you know, he was supposed to wait seven days and Samuel was going to be there. Samuel wasn't there. And then he just didn't wait and he went ahead and did it on his own. So I guess kind of straightforward and simply, it's like, okay, he didn't really listen, but there, I feel like there are some instances where people kind of, uh, you know, they kind of make stuff happen somewhat on their own when situations are weird and God accepts it. They take initiative. Yeah, sometimes people take initiative where it's like stuff isn't working out perfect, but then they they do whatever and kind of make it work, and, and then it is accepted and they're not condemned by that. Would you say that possibly a reason why this was condemned, that Saul did it, is just because maybe he just did it not with the right heart at all and he was just trying to like check a box but i don't know but like his faith actually wasn't there he was just wanting to do it to do it since that's what he was supposed to do i guess i don't know if that question makes sense um when we look at verse 13 samuel said to Saul you've been foolish you have not kept the command the lord your god gave you um it seems to have to do with a direct command from God, and he's disobeying by usurping, I think, the role of the priest, Samuel, at that time. And I, I don't think this is convoluted or, or, or something like he, he should have known, you know, you know he, he, he couldn't have known, but I think he did know better. Okay. And I think it's a clear, based on what I'm reading here, um, you know, you've been foolish, you broke God's clear command here, and he'll do that again and again and again, and then he'll plead ignorance. Oh, I didn't know better. Oh, I was trying to keep the best sacrifice uh, to offer to you, God. You know, and I, I think we give him the benefit of the doubt when he's where he's ignorant. When I, I'm not sure that we should, uh, but we, so, t- we tend to do that with all the main characters that we read in the Bible, right? We mm-hmm. we give them benefit of the doubt unless we we know otherwise. Mm-hmm. So I think you're right. I think this does kind of indicate. And so maybe that aspect of it is what shows that his heart's not in the right place because he's just right. not taking these commandments seriously. He's like, well, right. I kind of want to do it this way and just kind of make it work, whatever. He's not taking it seriously, and that kind of shows his a, a poor heart and poor faith maybe. Yeah, there's a churning, I think, here in chapter 13. I, I don't know what you guys covered last all chapters prior, right, last week, all prior 13 yep. chapters. And Ruth. And Ruth. Oh, wow, that's a, that's a ton. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I think this is kind of the turning point where we see him depending on God and humility and meekness to now more of a self-reliant attitude. I'm going to take things into my own hands. 
and eventually um, his self-reliance, self-dependence, and pride um, leads really to a murderous heart down the road here. Um, but yeah, yeah. So, that, oh, go ahead. No, I, I. Before we get there, I I'm curious. I think before we started recording, we had talked about whether or not Saul was uh, regenerate <laughs> or saved, and so I guess yeah, this yeah. turning point. What was the? You think it was just kind of this personality? He was just kind of more humble, or maybe just kind of. I don't know, hadn't really stepped into this king or kingly role and the power right, kind of, right. you know, he's starting to be twisted by it, but. Yeah, well, was it, what's the saying? Absolute power corrupts absolutely exactly. or something to that effect. Yeah. And you see that it's a slow start and it eventually um, this pride isn't eliminated from his heart. He begins to think of himself as something great. And I mean, when you, when you start contrasting with David, what they're saying, he killed 10,000s and I've only killed thousands. You, you know, the pride is starting to infest all aspect of his life. And um, when you come over to the New Testament, you know, le- a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And I think you're seeing that portrayed out here in Saul's life over the course of these few chapters here where he's just becoming further and further wicked, even when God continues, I think, to try to draw him back to himself by the different means of grace he offers him. And God had warned the people about this mm-hmm. early on, and they they liked Saul because right. he was tall. Right. And it's the same thing when Samuel goes to Bethlehem to Jesse and his sons, where he goes to the firstborn, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he's right. like, oh, right. this has to be the guy. He's, 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 he's tall, good looking, handsome, he's strong. Yeah, exactly. God's like, no, yeah. come on, I already told yeah. you yeah. that, you know, man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart, Right. and it's not about that. And so the because mm-hmm. the, the people chose Saul, it was not for his character, it was because he looked kingly, and mm-hmm. they wanted to king like the other nations. Right. Now, this turning point, mm-hmm. the... Demise. The nation is going to pay for, yeah, for the, for this uh, foolish choice of a king. Yeah, yeah. And reading through um, just the several chapters, kind of the story with Saul, and then eventually as David's introduced, and Saul's just kind of getting worse and worse and trying to kill him. Uh, the one thing I kept thinking about was just how Saul is just the exact same, uh, you know, kind of archetype or person that Cain was. I mean, it, it's the exact same thing. He, he's not following God. He right. sins. He's confronted with it and says, you're not good enough. Now you're not worthy because of your sin. This guy is going to be worthy. He's going to be a man after my own heart. And he's <laughs> just bitter, jealous, tries to kill him, tries to kill him murderous the same way Cain, mm. you know, despised uh, his brother because of his pride he just held on to. Mm-hmm. It just leads him to self-destruction. And right. it was really... I don't know. It was interesting to me to see that same thing. I'm like, that's just that's a very common human phenomenon of yeah. jealousy turning to bitterness, turning to hatred and yep. murderousness. I mean, it's selfish it ambition and conceit. Yeah, right. That's good. I don't think I've ever thought about that before. Cain and Saul. When you start looking for it, you see canes <laughs> everywhere, <laughs> and you see yeah. canes yeah. in yourself from time to time that you got to kill. Like it's a real it's a real thing. That's why I like the story of Cain and Abel so much. Is like it's so it's out. it's so short and so simple, but like when you yeah. kind of like grasp the point of it, you can see it it's everywhere. In, yeah, yeah, in human nature. Oh, yeah, huh. yeah, yeah. Jonah and Nineveh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wanting him to die and burn, and he hates them. And yeah, yeah. and it, and it's so you know it's always result of 
pride, not wanting to repent of your sin, thinking, well, everybody else is wrong or whatever. It's like, forget everybody else. Like, I'm doing my own thing, and it just, it always goes poorly. Right, right. That's good. Good connection. Again, one thing I thought of that maybe ties into just other stories, but it's just a typical thing where it's like, okay, David is chosen. You know, he's a whatever, a boy, teenager, young man, he's shepherding, mm-hmm. uh, you know, has success doing that, as much success as you can have being a shepherd. I mean, you know, he talks about successfully defending his flock from lions and bears. So, like, that's all gone well for him. He has faith in God. He steps up. He kills Goliath. He knows he's in line to be the king. It's like everything is going, everything's going great. Everything's, you know, turning up David. But uh, it's just interesting for me to see then all the adversity he goes through before he actually gets to be king. And I think that that, you see that so many times where God uses that uh, to develop the people that he chooses to lead. I mean, you know, same thing with the story of Joseph. It's like, he's the favorite son. He's getting the fancy coat. He's getting the dreams and visions. Everything's great for him. And then he goes through a horrible time that God uses to develop him and place him where he's supposed to lead. I just, I thought of that because I'm like, you see that a lot. It's like the, everything goes their way and it's like you don't develop as a person and you don't learn anything when just everything's going great. And like, it's just interesting to see how God uses that adversity mm-hmm. to develop people and to just turn them into something more that he can use. Well, with that adversity, especially David, you know, he had had victories. And so like mm-hmm. your past victories can help you face what you're facing now yeah. because God has helped you and has brought you along there. But I think that is a, a, narr- a narrative theme that you see. The suffering of God's people produces um, not only holiness, character, but it, it brings about his purposes in the end um, in ways that we don't expect or see. And um, God's people are called not to take shortcuts in that matter, but to trust him through it all and not to return evil for evil. Um, which is what you see David do, too, with Saul, right? I mean, he had the opportunity to kill him, but rather than just take out his enemy, uh, he trusted God with Saul's life rather than take vengeance into his own hand, um, which I don't think, I mean, even as as the reader, I'm not sure we would have condemned him for necessarily killing Saul for trying to kill him. We could have almost make an argument self-defense, um, but he goes so far as to trust God even in uh, the matter of his enemy. That is interesting because the one guy who... Did who claimed that he killed Saul? David actually had that guy executed. Yeah, so David was really serious about that. We see the beginnings of that in the portion that we that we were supposed to read for this week. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, continual trust of God, um, even with the life of his enemies. When we were reading this, I don't know if you guys want to talk about this or not. Up to you. What did you think about the Lord sending an evil spirit to Saul? Mm. What are your thoughts about that? Did God? Uh, oh, I mean, God sent the evil spirit to Saul. Uh, so what's up with that? That's what I was wondering. That was one thing I was going to ask. I'm like, what yeah. is, I didn't know what to make of that. Yeah. I think it sounds strange because we don't typically think of, of God mm-hmm. testing people that way. But mm-hmm. I think, I think God's in charge of everything and that he, he can use whatever means that he wants to accomplish his purpose. And he does. And mm-hmm. yeah, we kind of think it's like, evenly split like light and darkness god and angels and mm-hmm. satan and demon and it's just kind of like but if you think of it like the um 
what's the, what, I forget what it's called, the heavenly council or mm-hmm. the, you know, just yeah. like this, yeah. um, you know, God's in charge mm-hmm. and he's clearly in charge of all of them. Yeah. He does what he wants and he uses, he uses evil yeah. to bring about his purposes. Right. And in this case, I think, I don't know. I was just kind of struck reading it, going through this, that the spirit of the Lord was with Saul. Then the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and now instead of having the Lord's spirit with him, he has this evil spirit. And I think it's a sign of judgment more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's God saying, now instead of having my favor, um, you're going to have really my judgment for your disobedience and your failure to really repent, I think. I think, I mean, if I'm Saul in this story and I'm thinking, what what do I need to do? I think God wants him to repent and to turn back to him from his wayward ways. He's sad and broken, but he's sad and broken about losing the kingdom. He's not sad about his sin against God, I think, is what we're seeing here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so even this this sign of judgment, the evil spirit, I, I think it's supposed to— it's a sign of judgment, but it's meant to draw him back to himself and to repent. But rather than repent, he just becomes further enslaved to the sin that he's chosen to go into. And then, I mean, you look at David, and he's like the only means of grace, right? I mean, he plays the harp, the evil spirit departs. And if he were to trust God and say, you know what? He was right. I, I need to have the kingdom taken away from me, and God is just to do that. And I'm humbling myself. I'm accepting your judgment. Deliver me. I think that's repentance, right? Agreeing with God and about your sin, how bad it is, and accepting the consequence. I think he would have him and David could have been friends, I think, I mean, um, if he had lent himself over to the Lord's favor in that way. But rather, I think he's just hardening himself, and the Spirit is now his God's judgment upon him. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, well, I, I found that funny that mm-hmm. what would, what kind of, I don't know what the right word is, drive the evil spirit away or let it up or whatever was mm-hmm. playing right. of the instrument. And the person that ended up being the player of the instrument was the person that he became insanely jealous of and wanted to kill. It's like the thing right. that could have helped him and kind of saved him had he had the humility. Right, right. You know, that was like a challenge in and of itself. And he just couldn't get over that. Just the, yeah, the, jealousy and the hatred just overtook him and then he couldn't have the harmful spirit you know go away because of it Mm -hmm. so that was kind of a funny yeah he was concerned more about his glory yeah and would not share that with anyone and uh as a result he got taken out in the end so how tall was goliath (laughs) i've heard i've heard some people say no, nah, it's translated wrong he's only like six eight and then some people like that dude was over 10 feet tall that's what Steve said this past Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I was was under the impression he's over ten feet tall. I'm like, that's that's a legitimate giant. I, I have not studied this. I've not preached that passage. Okay. Um have you guys? No. <laughs> I just want to believe that he was over ten feet tall because that's way cooler. Yeah, I, I'm with Matthew. I I want to <laughs> believe that he was just this yeah. massive dude. Yeah. I mean, we have people taller than six eight right now. Right. I mean, I know that nutrition and you know right. stuff is better, but still like I, he, I think he was he was definitely over seven feet. He could have sure. been a remnant of the Nephilim. <laughs> Thoughts on that? That's totally. I I think that's true. That's totally fallen angels. Yeah. Yeah. mingling with humans. They, that's what that's. 
Yeah. I'm I'm putting that's where I'm planting my flag. That's what that passage is. <laughs> we got we got other Did you guys talk about that already? Yeah, kind well, of, yeah, a long pre, time ago. That's pre-flood though, right? Uh they said that they were around pre and post, so I don't know, I know how that but works. I don't know how I mean hey. that's why it has to be mysteries and it of, has to be demons, right? Human women. Right. That's why it has to be that. Cuz it's referenced Because otherwise it would just be from Noah's line, right? Right. David and Jonathan are bosom friends. Yeah, they're BFF. Best friends. I was so I was reading books on friendship and I you know they had mentioned that Jonathan you know because they use Jonathan and David as examples of like close male friendship. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it makes sense cuz that was But anyway, so like I was they were like and and he even made a covenant with David like a co- and uh, I was cuz in the context you would think it's like a friendship covenant but and it kind of is but it's also because of who Jonathan is, you know, he's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the line of the of Saul, right? And so it's kind of it's that don't harm my family right. when you take over. I know you're going right. to be king, yep. and so that, like the covenant made more sense reading it in the Bible versus like taking it in, in front terms in, of friendship. In terms of friendship, <laughs> right? So I that was helpful to yeah. to read that, and um, but also, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think there are things that we can take from from the friendship that we see that sure. Um, I don't think. Men had have those type of friendships today, and I think there's there's something that we can learn from that. But mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I thought that was good. No, I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah, it's not exactly a one for one translation. Therefore, you go make covenants with your best friend. Exactly. <laughs> While you so might you don't do kill that, their families. you can do that. Just don't take it from this passage. Yeah. yeah. Do it for your own reasons. But yeah, that's I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah, I think male friendship is something that is lacking more or less, and I appreciate people trying to, you know, see that in the scripture where it is and and to help develop that more, because I think it is important. Um, I'm not entirely sure if I've thought super deep about passages that talk about friendship. You, you've read books on that. I have not. Yeah, I think being a good church member is being a good friend, and um, I try to think of those things together. Do you guys have anything on Abigail, David, Nabal, yeah, that's a weird one. Like I've always thought that's kind of a strange story. Yeah. Um I, I feel like you know, just like if you keep reading something over and over and you know, I think it, it's you start to understand a little, little bit better. Um Nabal was definitely a fool. Like doesn't yeah. his name mean yep. stupid or something? Yeah, yeah. Something along those lines. So so we have that. They they kind of point they point that out in the text and he seems like a guy that just cared for himself and it said in the text that he you know was evil in his business dealings and it seems like he was kind of a a bad dude and didn't you know care about the guy that god had anointed king and was not interested in helping him right and, uh, right you know david was gonna take some vengeance or mm, vengeance right word i don't know his i think revenge is was the word i don't know yep vengeance but yep. then you know his wife was smart and mm-hmm David listened to her. Yeah, it's interesting because David's spare soul, right, who's been trying to kill him, but then this guy just basically ignores uh, him. Ignores him. And he's like, I'm going to kill the guy for doing that. Right. Maybe he had more respect for the royal throne position than this commoner. Um, but it's interesting that after entrusting God to take vengeance upon Saul for him, he then is about to go take vengeance for himself. and uh, But the Lord spares him because of Abigail and going and disobeying her husband right basically and taking all that stuff i don't know what she did she just did it she just so, did it yeah, and didn't tell did her it. husband right right and then 
again, because David left, you know, in this case, didn't take revenge on this guy, mm-hmm. left it uh, left it up to God. The Lord God, acted. God struck this guy down. Right. Um, which is also an interesting detail. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and maybe that helped him spare Saul's life again in the following chapter, which we haven't got to 26, but he's going to spare Saul again, and right. maybe he's learning, okay, God is going to take care of me. Mm-hmm. Progressively, he's learning that lesson. Yeah, it's, yeah good. it's a good lesson for us to learn, too, when... Mistreated. God's, yep. Yeah, what, what we go through and God continues to yeah. strengthen us and to bring us through. Yeah, when we face serious persecution or slander, that's just not true at all as Christians. And um, right now for us, not super real here in the U.S., but for other st- other countries, this is, this is a real thing all the time. God's people being persecuted and afflicted and truly entrusting themselves to God to take vengeance. Last line here. I was just interested. I mean, <laughs> David also married this other woman, uh, Ahinoam of Jezreel. In the same sentence, really, yeah. as the other, as Abigail. And the two of them became his wives. And then it says in verse 44, but Saul gave his daughter, is it Michael, David's wife? That's why I say it. To Palti, son of Laish, who was from Galim. I, I don't know if I missed this or something before. I didn't realize that Saul, he already gave her to him to be his wife, and now he's taking her away and getting yeah. to another Well, man. <laughs> first, Saul promised a different daughter to David. Yeah. And then did not, you know, was not happy with David, so gave that daughter away to someone else. And then he's like, okay, well, I guess <laughs> it would be good to have you as a son-in-law. You know, hopefully My- Michael will, will trip you up and it'll be a hindrance to you to him, which does not happen. Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah and then he gives her away to someone else. Yeah, it's a weird thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that'd be all the more reason to kill gave one of your wife away. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're in one of the bottom tier Gospels. Okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> what? Okay, Matthew likes the book of Matthew for obvious reasons. Yeah, that's basically... You like the book of Luke. Yeah, Luke's solid. Mark is a slacker. Yeah, not because interested. Because it's, shor- he's just too, it's short. too brief. Too brief. Yeah, great. You did some sandwich stuff. Yeah. Cool. Good... good literary stuff for you but i mean john, I, I don't john okay so john is the best gospel yeah and we're going to talk about why that <laughs> is today you know i'm open to liking it more i really don't have that much against it i just like causing controversy well it has the most unique material in it compared to the oh for Matthew, sure Mark, luke right yeah like ninety percent, I can't remember what the number is. It's it's high. Yeah, really? yeah. yeah. I mean, only one thing that we're going to talk about in this yeah. section is actually included in the synoptics, right? Um, well, I guess the one thing we talked about last week was the uh, cleansing of the temple, which is mm-hmm. included in the other ones, but not in the same place. Not in the front end. In John, yeah. it's it's in the front, mm-hmm. the beginning of the ministry, mm-hmm. which is clearly stated. It's not like oh, it's just the beginning of the book, but it wasn't maybe at the beginning of the ministry. But he mm-hmm. says like. He started out his ministry with the first sign in Cana, mm-hmm. and then you know travels to whipping time. Yep, and then mm-hmm. goes back and does another sign in Cana, the second of the mm-hmm. Cana cycle. Mm-hmm. And so we know it's at the beginning, whereas you know in the other gospels, the the cleansing of the temple is at right the towards at the end. Yeah. Right. So I wouldn't be surprised if John is moving stuff around in the timeline because it seems like he's picking you know he's i think he's aware of the other gospels he's writing this later um and i think he's had time to really think about it and has chosen these vignettes and put them together for his purpose which 
since you guys weren't here, I mean, he says, you know, we talk about Old Testament, why it's hard to figure out what's the point, like what is there a main point, what what should we take from this? John tells us why he wrote this book. He tells right, us at the end, up. you know, he wrote this so that people will believe that Jesus is the Messiah. There were many other signs that he wrote that he didn't include, but he included these for a reason. These messianic signs, these these accounts that prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And so we have them here, and so John lays them out very meticulously, and that's why they're very unique. It's because John has carefully crafted this gospel. That's why I like it. Because it's carefully crafted, whereas the other ones are The other ones are carefully crafted, but it's because it's unique. Um, we have... Sure. We would not have the same Trinitarian gospel without John at all, mm. not even close. And there's so many different literary devices that John uses to bring his point across. And we'll, we'll see some of those as we continue to go through this, if we have time. So we talked about the Cana cycle last week, along with the prologue and a little bit of authorship, which since that episode has not been edited, I'm not sure what's going to remain <laughs> in that episode. But we did talk about that. Um, and now in John 5, we start the festival cycle, which is just where John uses these different accounts that are occurring with these different feasts and festivals. Mm. So we have mm -hmm. in John 5, the healing of the lame man, and mm. that was at some unnamed festival in Jerusalem. John 6 shows Jesus at the Passover in Galilee. Mm-hmm. John 7 and 8, Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths in Jerusalem. And in John 10, Jesus is at the Feast of Dedication or what we call Hanukkah. And again, that's in Jerusalem. So John has this these accounts in John 5 to 10 that all are occurring at these different feast times. And so, again, cherry-picking probably over a year, a year of Jesus' ministry, you know, for the these different feasts to occur. So John is including these back-to-back, -back, um, and that kind of binds these chapters together. Now, you might ask, why <laughs> is John doing this? AJ, what's John doing? <laughs> With the festivals? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's another one of these literary devices where John is bringing these festivals to light. The readers of this gospel are going to be these Jewish people that are steeped in the Greco-Roman culture, but they're still going to have knowledge of these feasts. They're going to have participated in them. It's part of their heritage, and they're going to be able to see more clearly how Jesus fulfills and is the true meaning of these festivals, and the symbols that they pointed to is the symbol is Jesus, and so I think they're going to make those connections in relation to these messianic signs so is he writing to Jews then, primarily? I think he knows that that it's going to be more than Jews reading it. But I think it is, this is, this is personal, I think it's Jews that are steeped in Greek culture. So you're going to have elements that are highly Jewish and also elements that are... Gentilian. Like, yeah, Gentile <laughs> elements too. Um, you know, we have the centurion. Right. Being, uh, so, you know, we have... Like last week we talked about Nicodemus, who was a teacher of the law in chapter three. He should have known what Jesus was talking about, and he completely misses the point. Jesus right. is like, you need to be born again. He's like, what are you talking about? Oh, my you can't be born again. Yeah. But then the next chapter, he's contrasted with the Samaritan woman, 
who is not part of the the you know the pure Jew and they don't worship in the right place, whatever. She doesn't know anything, but um, Jesus starts talking to her, and the longer he talks to her, the more she talks, the more she asks. The more Jesus talks to Nicodemus, the less he talks, and he just does not get it at all. But someone who's outside the the faith, who is not a, a Jewish leader or whoever, the person you would think would be the right target audience for this, mm-hmm. does not get it. So I think we're starting to see the truth of of Jesus, the kingdom expanding from the Jews to the Samaritans, and then the account after that is the centurion, mm-hmm. the Gentile. Including the Gentiles yeah. into that. So I think we start to see that mm-hmm. j- even as the accounts unfold. Mm. Love so, it. <laughs> so all, all, all that to say, John is using these to hit different people groups mm-hmm. to point back to his mission to help people believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So anyway... We can start with the healing of the lame man in John 5, if you want to. I don't know if you have any anything you want to talk about. but Yeah, I've heard that discussed a little bit. What was that exactly? Like the waters would be stirred at certain points, and it was like the first one in would get healed. Is that what was going on? In the oldest manuscripts, they don't have this, but there are, and it, there is that superstition that may or may not have been true, where... At some point at this specific pool, an angel would come down and stir the waters, and if you got into the pool, you could get healed. Now, that's why this guy's here, so that sets the scene, and so that's what that little the beginning of this passage is talking about. So this guy has been there for 38 years. I forget, a yeah, long, 38. long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. and so I think John is specifically using this to make the point that Jesus didn't stage this. Right. This is not a fake account. This is... Some guy that's been there for decades mm-hmm. wanting to be healed. And we see the account unfold. But, um, I, yeah, this guy's been there for a long time. Yeah, it's kind of a catch-22 where it's like, I need to be healed of being paralyzed, but I need to swiftly get in the water. <laughs> like, you got to find a friend to yeah. ch- chuck you in well, there. Well, it's interesting that Jesus, you know, this uh, that detail is included, but Jesus does not address any of that. All he says is, take up your bed and walk. Yeah. Like he doesn't even doesn't even address it. He just was like, it doesn't matter what that superstition is. I'm the one who can heal you, and I'm going to speak the words of healing to you mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. teach through this this account here. And I found it inter- interesting from the account. He just kind of kind of went up to the guy and said, "Do you want to be healed?" I mean, sometimes it's people spot Jesus and they're like, "Oh, him, heal yeah. me, have mercy on me." They try to touch his cloak right. or whatever. But this seems like. Jesus goes after him? Yeah, it was just purely this guy's just laying there for 38 years in misery. Like, that's a that's a bad streak of 38 years not getting anything done, but Jesus completely on his own, yeah, reaches out to this guy and heals him. Right, yeah. It is a peculiar account. I mean, he goes after him and heals him, and then he, <laughs> he calls the man to pick up his mat and walk. It's like he's almost looking for a fight on the Sabbath, you know, he... He, he knows it's this, he's not ignorant of that, and as a result, he's infuriating the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Um, it's, it's, it's almost like Jesus is picking a fight here with them through this miracle that he himself goes after and pursues. Um, yeah. yeah. Jesus, ultimate button pusher of the Pharisees and all <laughs> them. He just knew how to get them riled up. 
um, brought about the debate of, of the Sabbath and who he was, um, I think, right? Yeah, I think this is what starts that antagonism mm-hmm. towards Jesus, mm-hmm. um, this account here. Um, and it's closely contrasted in chapter 9 where Jesus heals the blind man and you know has a very similar account. Yeah, it's really interesting, and it we see just see this uh, fury from the religious leaders escalate from here on out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they began persecuting him, verse sixteen, because he's doing these things on the Sabbath. It's like he was blatantly ignoring that my father's still working, and so I'm working also. And want to kill him all the more, <laughs> revealing himself to be equal with God, be God Himself. So the feeding of the five thousands is one of the signs that is found in the other gospels, oh, but yeah. it's. It is, uh, you know, it has different details, right? Um, um, this one compared yeah. to Mark, because um, Mark has two of the account, two of the feedings of the 5,000 and of the 4,000 Gentiles. So, yeah. And is this, is John, am I right in remembering that John mentions that these are men? Yeah, the other ones mention women and children. Right, right. And I'm pretty sure this is just men, if yep. I remember correctly, because I remember, I'm like, oh, that's such an odd thing. But yeah, it kind of calls into question, who are these guys? I think they're like Mm -hmm. zealots or something to that effect. I'm trying to remember. I think Um, so, because after the teaching of the the bread of life, which we get to, I think that's where we start to see a lot of the disciples uh, stop following him. Right, right. Correct me if I'm wrong. But after this account, we do see that. So I think Mm -hmm. think that makes sense that these would be what, you know, you could say are disciples of, of not the 12, but followers of Jesus at this point. Yeah. Is it after this that they also want to make him king right away? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, and I think he goes away and walks on the water. Oh, yeah. Yep, right after that, yeah. To kind of make make him the king right then and there. Um, But, yeah, what is the significance of this miracle? I mean, we hear it all the time, the feeding of the 5,000. Why does it matter? Well, I think we see contrast to Moses because we see Moses being mentioned as providing manna mm-hmm. and then Jesus corrects them and says well no Moses didn't provide the manna God provided food from heaven mm-hmm. but I'm that food from heaven I'm the bread mm-hmm. I'm the nourishment that your soul needs mm-hmm. not tradition not this religion that, that you're following right now so I think Jesus uses something physical to to show a spiritual reality, and I think that's instructive for us because I know we I spend so much time throughout the day figuring out how I'm going to get food and drink <laughs> because I'm hungry and thirsty. Yeah. But how much do we think about our spiritual needs and our spiritual hunger and mm-hmm. the the right ways to satisfy those needs and for our spiritual health? So I right. think. That's one application that I was thinking about from this from this passage here is we really should be giving attention to spiritual hunger and our spiritual needs uh, for our spiritual life. Yeah. Even when we come to church tonight, it's back to the spiritual needs. It's like <laughs> how much are we thinking about our, something, you know, physical, like, oh, you know, what other stuff that's going on or priorities. But, like, when we come to church, we should be thinking about our spiritual needs and right. spiritual needs of others and because they're just as real as the physical needs. Right. We just don't see them all the time. We can be spiritually malnourished and famined, and I think we only begin to realize that when we do have like an incredibly discontent spirit or we're just emotionally drained. It starts to affect us physically, I think. 
Um, at least it does for me. I'm just exhausted and haven't recharged and meditated um, to gain really my my spiritual food and need from Christ and to draw on Him. Um, even as Jesus did, I mean, over and over again, you see him in prayer with the Father, depending on the Spirit, um, as an example to us. And how often we ourselves go without <laughs> spiritual food that you've you've been mentioning. So we we see the first of the I am statements listed, and we see Jesus saying that He is the the bread of life, and um, then delivers <laughs> this bread of life discourse that we've been we've been touching on, but. When we get to verse 53, I'm going to read this here. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's no way that that's literal. But what, what is Jesus talking about here? That, that's a very striking verse. It's very graphic. Mm-hmm. What's, what's Jesus trying to communicate here? You want my off the cuff, not thought out answer? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I, I cherry picked this, right? Like we didn't we didn't yeah. read through, but we all yeah. we all read this passage and we've been reading through the Book of John. So right, um, yeah, off the cuff. What do you got, Josh? Yeah, I, I think it's he's using the the language there of our absolute need for Christ. Like to, I mean, that is like you need to eat him. Like you, I think he's just saying you need Jesus like entirely, completely. You need that, and he's going to say, through faith. Um, and I think that's how we partake in Christ, what he's going to do for us, his, his body being broken, his blood being shed. And, and we partake in that life that he gives us, the pouring out of his life on the cross for us um, by faith. And to do this in such a, a graphic way, I think, is meant to stun us, to, to help us realize, like, I need Jesus that badly. Um, not that we would literally eat him or, or drink his blood, but that we would li- we would see our need all the more. Like Jesus is saying this so that we would grab a hold of the concept of how important he is. And if that doesn't shock you, it should, um, because like that that's how bad we need him. I, I think um, I haven't read commentaries on this at all or what they say. Right. Maybe it plays on the one or two verses earlier where it says the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, which again is kind of literal, but not really. I mean, he gives his flesh on the cross, but it's not, you know, literal food for the whole world physically. Yeah. I think it's still kind of, you know, it's tying back to the, the, the food from heaven, the bread, the manna in the wilderness. I think the people ate it and God sustained them. And, you know, when we, are nourished by Jesus, you know, that's what sustains us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think right. that evidence, you know, also, you know, points and points back to that the Jesus is God and that, that he is, you know, our only wafer for life. So Wafer? Yeah. Wafer. <laughs> wafer life. His, exactly. His flesh was uh, a wafer. Honey-flavored wafer. Ooh. But don't be dipping your... You're sticking it if you're not supposed to, even if nobody tells you. Well, Jonathan, he got... Oh, what are you talking about? From back in First Samuel. Oh. I guess we didn't discuss it earlier. But nobody told him. See? Nobody told him, don't eat the honey, and then he ate the honey. His eyes were bright. After yeah. He's like, come on, Saul. Yeah. Which, stupid. Yeah. And which, he almost died for it. Yeah. <laughs> but, all right, rewind. Since we didn't talk about that before, I forgot that I found that interesting. That was like a poor judgment on Saul's part, right? Because it's like, hey, everybody's tired and weary. Let them enjoy the plunder and get refreshed. And, 
yeah, that was that was a bad idea. Yeah. It's just kind of interesting. Is that where they get that theology from? That it's literally the blood, and that that's not what I was going for. I just it, Christ. You know, when you're reading it, it's striking. Um, and I think that's why John used, or you know, why Jesus uses it and John right. records it, mm-hmm. um, because it's it's straight. That's what you know, trying to get your attention. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, you guys need me that badly. Don't you forget it. And right. then the disciples on the boat and Mark later on are complaining about not having bread, and Jesus, the bread of life, is right there. Oh yeah, <laughs> right so, after that, you know. <laughs> so that reminds me. Uh, yeah. Why did Jesus have the disciples gathered the leftovers? Yeah. What's the why? Yeah. If Jesus could just like why gather twelve bag whatever it was I don't remember twelve baskets. I I think it's I mean so in Mark you have the twelve baskets and the first feeding right that we just covered here, and then in the second feeding he has seven baskets, and I think it's significant on both accounts because uh, the twelve tribes twelve tribes of Israel Christ what he's doing is more than sufficient enough to satisfy all twelve tribes. Um, I I'm reading into that maybe I don't know. Um, I and, like it. it and then there good. was for the Gentiles, the 4,000 that he did the same exact miracle for. Uh, there were seven major kingdoms of the Gentiles at the time. And I think it's foreshadowing in the gathering for them. It's sufficient for them too. And so Christ, even what we just talked about him being the bread of life and, you know, drinking his blood, eating his flesh, it's, it's his work is sufficient uh, for all people. And you see that in the 12 baskets and in the seven baskets, I think. Mm-hmm. Again, you're reading into that, right? You're speculating a little bit, um, but I think it's there for a reason. And I take it to mean his work is full and more than enough uh, for the entirety of the world, for all for all of God's people. I like that. I wouldn't have thought of it. Yeah. Did you have a different concept? No, no. I, uh, that's, I remember. That's what I've read. Yeah. yeah. No, that was, that was great. The one thing that I had with chapter 7 was just where the Jews marveled at Jesus' teaching, you know, because he didn't have formal training like some of these other rabbis. Um, and then mm. Jesus points out that they really didn't understand the scriptures, even though, you know, they've had it and they've studied it forever. And it just, it was getting me thinking, you know, trying to apply that or yeah, you know, to think, yeah. you know, we've got the scriptures and... What do we not you know, understand? Yeah, what do we not understand? Or how can we prevent being so familiar with the Bible that we aren't continuing to to grow from it and or familiar with what we think we know maybe is a better way to put it mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not continually um, you know work on yeah. understanding the truth and what God is actually trying to communicate right word so I think that's, that's a, a question, question that I have yeah, that I, I think that's a great question I I, I kind of wonder the same sometimes too. Um, with the the Jews, the people of Israel, I think part of their being misguided and misled is that they measured on the minor things, right? They majored on the minor things. They thought, this is what God really wants. He wants our obedience, which is true to us. Yeah, he wanted their, their obedience, but he wanted their hearts above all. And so then they start to major in all the law keepings and establishing the boundaries. And in the progress of focusing so much on that, they they missed the heart of God wanting their heart above all, not just their mere conformity and obedience, which he certainly did. And, I mean, Israel's condemned over, over, and over, and over again, right? Um, and so they're finally obeying, but now they're doing it for their own glory and not God's, and now they're just breaking the law in a different way. Um, so for us, I think it's continuing to major 
on that was of utmost importance and not getting caught up on the trivial because I think sometimes we can get so caught up on nuances of our theology or eschatology or these third-tier issues that, I mean, while it's interesting and it's helpful maybe to a certain degree, we, we make it everything when we shouldn't. And then we end up dividing over over these third-tier issues from our brothers and sisters in Christ rather than recognizing it. this isn't as important as I'm making it be. Um, and so holding fast to what is of utmost important, I think, will help us in the end uh, to not miss what is of utmost significance like the Israelites did. I mean, they missed the Messiah completely. And uh, to be honest, uh, if we were there in their, you know, in their shoes, I think we might have too. I'm not sure. As we wrap up, I, one question that I keep asking myself as I read through the book of John is, and I think might be helpful for the listeners, is... I keep Why asking, isn't as as good as Luke? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> that is not what I ask. I think because this book is way better than all the other Gospels. <laughs> Tell God that. What is the master... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I keep asking... What am I supposed to believe about Jesus from this passage? Mm. And I, that's been a good guide. Josh, thank you for coming on. I appreciate that last thing you said about how the Jews were focusing on minor issues and third tier issues, and we tend to make it, uh, you know, some of the issues of the forefront. And we're going to continue doing that on the podcast, probably. <laughs> and we will try to also keep in balance with the the main issues too but um i think that's good and instructive for for us as christians so josh thanks for filling in and i hope to see you back matthew thanks for coming back again i'm glad you're back thanks for receiving me again much appreciated (laughs) you didn't get rebuked this week yeah a rebukee isn't here that's true well i would have rebuked you if you said something crazy yes do, do well, I kind of did. Do you typically say something insane? Well, I mean, yes. That's kind of a daily thing. But This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. To learn more about the church and everything about the church, you can visit us at resurrectionmn.org.